Good morning. My name is uh, Sean Cummings. My wife, Dally, and I have been attending Joy for four years. We've been members for two. We have two children, Luna, who is four, and uh, Clara, who's one and a half. We have another on the way to be due in February. I was raised in the church. Um, I could recite the gospel from a very young age, but God didn't see fit to call me to himself and expose me to my hypocrisy lifestyle or hypocritical lifestyle until I was between 16 and 18. We're going to be reading in Acts chapter 9 this morning. The passage can be found on uh, 917, page 917, if you're going to use a pew Bible. We're going to be do, uh, start doing verses uh, 9, 19 through 31. And the reading is actually going to be beginning in the middle of um, verse uh, 19 with the uh, phrase, for some days. For some days he, this being Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We love you and we are, eternal, we are eternally grateful, Lord, for your grace in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for saving the chiefest of sinners, Lord. And I'm not talking about Paul, Lord. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you, Lord, that we, there is no condemnation, Lord, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not that we may continue in sin, that grace may abound. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this church, Lord, for bringing us all together here to hear your word. I pray that you would anoint your servant, Lord that he would speak clearly, that you would give him utterance, Lord, that you would keep his mind clear. And I thank you for your grace, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 8, Luke recounts the story of a demon-possessed man who lived in the area of the Gerasenes, 
Uh, this man, for a long time, had lived naked among the tombs rather than in a house. He was kept under guard, and he had to be shackled, kept chained. But he would break out of the shackles and chains, and he'd be driven into the desert by demons. Surely, everyone in this area knew who this guy was. And it's safe to say that they stayed away from him. Jesus encounters this man, and he casts the demons out of this man into a herd of pigs. We don't have time to get into that part of it today. And after this, Luke mentions that the man was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. The people were afraid. Can you picture this scene? Have you ever read this account in Luke's gospel or, or Matthew's or Mark's? Have you ever read this? It is a wild scene. Hey, who's the, you, know, you come, the crowd comes, they saw this whole thing happen with a bunch of pigs. Hey, who's that sitting at Jesus' feet? Oh, that's, that's Bill. Bill from the tombs. You remember Bill? That's not possible that that's Bill. I know Bill. I've seen Bill. Bill is crazy. We stay away from Bill. He's dangerous. Uh, yes, he was. He was all of those things. But this Jesus guy just healed him. You inviting Bill over for dinner tomorrow night? I think I'm going to wait and see. I think I'm not ready to make that commitment. Because I've known a lot of Bill previous to this, and none of it tells me I should have him in my house for dinner. Let's see how this whole thing plays out. The passage that Sean just read from Acts chapter 9 tells a story that while different in many ways, is strikingly similar. Jesus transformed Saul instantaneously. In a moment. From an enemy of Christ and a violent persecutor of his followers into a believer and a follower. He was struck blind on the road to Damascus as he was on his way to arrest the Jewish believers in Christ. Jesus gave him instructions after he was struck blind. He told him to wait in Damascus. Ananias was sent to him as the human instrument in Saul's healing and baptism. While Jesus had absolutely changed this man, everything about his life was going to be different from that point forward. That doesn't mean that all the believers in Christ were immediately ready to welcome him in. It also didn't mean that because he was now a believer in Jesus, life was going to be a bed of roses. As a matter of fact, we find right away that Saul becomes an enemy of those who were his friends just a few minutes ago. This morning, I want us to consider four things from this passage in Acts. A changed man, a proclaimed message, a varied reaction, and a promise being fulfilled. 
a changed man, a proclaimed message, a varied reaction, and a promise being fulfilled. And believe it or not, I've got really good news for you. Point one's already done. I did it. My hope that is that with the rest of our time, we're going to see a few things. First, the Lord truly transforms. He does. Uh, that the message of Jesus is the central message of the church. The faithfulness to Jesus will mean both fruitful ministry and painful opposition. And that the Lord's purposes prevail in times of comfort and ease and in times of hardship and persecution. Got that? Did you hear all that? So let's go right into the passage. Do you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 9? Right out of the gate, something pops out of me, uh, and it's the word that kind of goes like right out of the gate. Verse 20, immediately, immediately pops out. Saul was converted, and he's gathered together with the disciples in Damascus right away. Implicit, and I think accurate. How is it possible? Like, Saul was on his way. They knew he was on his way to get them, to arrest them. And now right away we find a meeting with them and fellowshipping with them. I think it's implicit in that that Ananias plays a big role in Saul being welcomed with the disciples. Immediately, it says, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. Let, and let's not lose the wonder of this. This is, he was on his way to persecute the name of Jesus. That's what he was going there for. And now he's in the synagogue proclaiming the name of Jesus. And while his personal testimony was amazing, Saul does not proclaim himself, but Jesus as Lord. We see in verse 20 that Saul said, he is the son of God. In verse 22, Luke says that Saul was proving that Jesus is the Christ. In Barnabas' testimony about Saul before the apostles in Jerusalem, he told them how Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. This emphasis began right here. So Saul, within days, weeks of becoming a believer, is preaching Christ. And he never stopped. This was his emphasis from day one, and it went through his whole life and ministry. Right? First Corinthians chapter one, Paul says, I'll say this now. I forgot to say in the beginning. I said it last week. Sometimes I'm gonna say Saul, sometimes I'm gonna say Paul. They're not two different people, they are the same man. Okay? Saul Paul. Paul didn't get change his name to Paul when he became a believer. Paul is his Roman name, Saul is Jewish name. That's it. So if I say them both, I'm sorry. So anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, 
But we preach what? Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To the Galatians, he said in chapter 6, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the message of first importance. Larry preached on that a few months ago, two months ago. And from the very beginning of Paul's ministry, he makes that known. This is not about me. I am not the spectacle here. This is about Jesus. Jesus is the name by which we must be saved. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised Savior. He is the one who rescues blind and dead sinners. He is the Son of David who will rule and reign forever. He is the Son of God, not a Son of God, the Son of God, the promised one, the eternal one, fully God and fully man. This is not just Saul's new hobby horse since he got saved. This is the message of the church. The church can get passionate about a lot of stuff. But if the heart of what we do and what we proclaim is not Christ and Him crucified, we are off target. We are in error. Saul's immediate burden is to tell the world that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Messiah. Because apart from the message of Jesus, there is no hope. You understand that, right? Apart from the gospel of grace, there's no hope for us. There is no hope for this world. There is no salvation. Apart from the gospel of grace, there is no growth in godliness. Right? Jesus is our message not just of salvation, but of sanctification. There is no church apart from the message of Jesus. The confession of Christ as Lord is the bedrock upon which the church is built. We are not a social justice organization. We are not a political organization. We are the possessors of the most precious truth the world has ever known. We preach the gospel of grace, the hope of glory, found in Christ alone. With that said, you, believers in Christ, brothers and sisters, and we, preachers, leaders of the church, we ought never be ashamed of the gospel. We ought never be ashamed of proclaiming the gospel from this pulpit, whatever may come as a result. 
We ought never be ashamed of telling one another and telling the world around us that there is salvation in no other name. The gospel is the saving message, the message of first importance. Looking to Christ is how the believer is transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We're spending a lot of time in 2 Corinthians today in this service, I'm noticing. We might go there again in the future. We will, as a matter of fact. Not only did Paul proclaim Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah, it says in verse 22 that he increased all the more in strength. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean he was working out, pumping iron? No. The point is that he became stronger in his faith. The evidence of the Holy Spirit working in and through him and in his proclamation of God's word grew and grew and grew. And not only was he preaching the word of God and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says that he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He was taking time to reason with the Jews of Damascus. He was using what we call the Old Testament to show the people that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you were in my Sunday school class, this is a repeat, but I'm going to say it anyway. I was reminded this week of how saturated the New Testament is with Old Testament references. Do you know how many chapters there are in the New Testament? If you're in my Sunday school class, you should. That's books. How many chapters? 929. Everybody in my class remembers that, for sure. Do you know how many chapters of the New Testament do not feature Old Testament references? Twelve. Twelve out of 929. Oh, thank you, class, by the way, for, for remembering that number. Uh, 12 out of 929. The emphasis of the New Testament, I would say Luke's emphasis in writing his gospel and, and in Acts, is to prove that Jesus is the one that had been promised. Jesus showed that he was who he said he was by his perfect life that attested to him being the Son of God, the Messiah. He showed that he was who he said he was by his sacrificial death on the cross, making atonement for the sins of the people of God. Jesus showed that he was who he said he was when God raised him victoriously from the dead. In victory over death and sin and hell, he proved by his resurrection that he was the one. And Paul is spending his time, day in and day out, preaching the gospel and proving that Jesus is the Son of God. Taking the time to labor with people and say, yes, what I believe, I take by faith because Jesus is not literally, physically sitting in this room right now, but our faith is with reason. We believe in a truly resurrected Savior. 
We believe in one who is the fulfillment of all that God had promised. And we don't have to be ashamed to sit down with people and say, I believe in Jesus. And here are some of the reasons I believe in Jesus. Here are, and if you want to talk to, I don't have time for it today, but here, if you want to come up, and, yeah, I'd love to have those conversations. Sometimes I get, I get nervous. Sometimes I get shaky. Sometimes I feel like I don't have accurate things to say. I'd love to talk to you about that. Or any of us, any of us elders would love to talk to you about that. Provide you with resources. Provide you with training. Our faith has reason. Paul was not ashamed to say, I know it's true because he struck me blind on the road to Damascus. But guess what also? He is the fulfillment of everything we've been looking for. And we missed it. It's not only okay but good for you to know proofs that Jesus is the Christ. Many people live their lives by a faith that has very little evidence, if any. To say there is no God in a world that is full of order. To say that the fundamental belief that you have is that everything moves from order to disorder, but my faith that there is no God says exactly the opposite, that everything's moving from disorder to order. Very little evidence for that. People who say, I am the ultimate arbiter of truth or I am the ultimate decider of what happens in my life. Very little evidence for that. I evolved from nothing. Very little evidence from that. Or, or uh, of that, I should say. You are kind when you speak to others about Jesus. It's kind. Even if, if they don't take it in. Even if they get mad at you. You're being kind. When you stand up for your faith, you're being kind. When you seek and learn how to defend your faith, you are being a good disciple, faithful. The Lord is sovereign over the responses and reactions of people. We don't get to change hearts. We don't get to change minds. But you are called to faithfulness. And the church is called to keep the message of Jesus as her central message and burden. You cannot control responses. Which brings us to point three. The varied reaction that Saul receives. You know, you want to think that if you share such wonderful news with people, right? I've got, I've got great news for you. As a free gift, the God who we continually offend from the heart, we who have tried to rule our own lives, be our own gods, thumb our nose at the one who actually is God, that God, in grace and love, has given us his son. So that we who stand to inherit eternal damnation instead, through faith in Christ, can inherit eternal life. Can be forgiven for our sins. That's good news, right? 
you think, you want to think, that somebody would say, everybody would say, wow, that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I yeah absolutely. I believe that. Thank you. You want to think that when the Lord changes someone, immediately every Christian in their life around them is just going to welcome them with open arms. Say, ah, oh, this is a new, new creation. But this passage tells a different story. Being truly changed is no guarantee that everyone will immediately believe you're a different person. And being a proclaimer of the truth is no guarantee that everybody's going to love you. Matter of fact, it's a guarantee that not everybody's going to love you. And we see the full gamut of responses in these verses. The passage begins with, for some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And I mentioned earlier, he had received a welcome. Undoubtedly, Ananias was a part of that. It would be really powerful for another brother, right? So we're talking about the varied response. Now imagine, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I think I'm on good ground. Ananias goes to these people and says, let me tell you about what the Lord did. Let me tell you about what happened to this man. Let me, let me tell you what, what happened to me. What I heard. I didn't believe it. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go to Saul. But the Lord told me I had to. So I did. And what I saw was amazing. And what happened was amazing. Having others to stand by our side, to testify on our behalf is helpful. Some welcomed him. Some were amazed. Some, some said, isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And hasn't he come here for this purpose? To bring them bound, some of us bound before the chief priests? And that is exactly why he came. He did. He came to arrest you. But he's not that man anymore. The Jewish leaders who were once Saul's friends, well, guess what? They're not his friends anymore. His enemies became his friends and his friends became his enemies. They wanted to kill him. Not speak with him. Not silence him. Not arrest him even. They plotted to kill him, it says. All right, I'm going to say this. Uh, verse 23 begins with, so we're where it talks about them plotting to kill him. Uh, verse 23 begins with, when many days had passed. Did you see that? I just, I think it's helpful because you, maybe you're reading in your Bible reading, you read in, Galatians, Paul gives this account of like when he came to faith and then he went away, he was in Arabia, then he came back to Damascus, then he went. So the when many days had passed, they generally, commentators generally believe this is what Paul is referring to as his time away in Arabia. So three years, probably about three years away, he comes back to Damascus. Thankfully, uh, he has friends. In Damascus. As they're plotting to kill him, his friends sneak him out through the wall. Houses were actually built into the walls of the city. So they could sneak him out through the wall and send him on his way. And did you notice 25? It says, But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall. 
talking about the varied responses of the people. These are not disciples of Saul. These are disciples of Jesus who came to faith in Christ through Saul's ministry. And so we see even now here in this passage, he is, he is making disciples. The gospel is bearing fruit in the lives of some. And so uh, he is rescued, taken by night, and he journeys to Jerusalem. What does he find in Jerusalem? What reaction does he get in Jerusalem? The disciples there, though three or more years have passed, they don't want him to join them. His reputation precedes him. They didn't believe that he was a disciple, or at least they were afraid of him. But again, Saul finds a friend with Barnabas, the encourager. We met Barnabas in chapter 4. Barnabas knew of what happened to Saul in Damascus. He shares that, with it, shares that with the brothers and sisters in Christ. Luke says here that Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. It is a true blessing to have brothers and sisters in Christ in our corner. Helping us, defending us, speaking well of us to others. Because of the testimony of Barnabas, Saul is welcomed. But at the same time, he begins speaking and disputing with the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists. Hey, I got a question. Who did we last find disputing with the Hellenists? Stephen. And what happened to Stephen? He was stoned. And who was approving of that stoning, according to Luke? Saul. And now, Saul is taking Stephen's place. He's the one disputing with these guys. And they knew who he was. Again, I don't want to over-psychologize, but it's like, hey, wait a second, you were on our team. Remember? We were working together. This is the grace of God. The grace and providence of God is unbelievable. The Hellenists wanted him dead, and Saul continued preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. It says that in verse 27. It says it in verse 28. So we have disciples being made, people who are amazed, people who doubt, people who want Saul dead. It runs the full gamut. Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Amen. Same message, right? He doesn't have like, let me give the hateful message to the unbelievers and the happy message to the believers. Same message, the aroma of Christ to God. It's a pleasing sacrifice to God. And some people hear it, 
and they love it. By God's grace, they receive it. Other people hear it, and they hate it. it smells like death. It smells like death to me. And that tells me, brothers and sisters in Christ, we should expect the same when we share Christ with others. We want everybody to like us. I know it. I want to be liked by everybody. And I want to be kind and respectful in the way that I share. Even though what we speak is truly good news, whenever we share the gospel, even the good news strikes at the heart and conscience of people first. The good news involves bad news. Because Jesus is Lord, it means we are not. Because Jesus is the Son of God, it means that we owe him perfect allegiance, perfect submission. And we've fallen well short of that, have we not? Because Jesus is the truth, it means that every other quote-unquote way of salvation is a lie that must be repented of. And people don't like to hear that. When you tell somebody implicitly or explicitly that the way they're living their life, the worldview they're living by is wrong and it leads to hell, as loving as that may be, they don't like that. Jesus is the only way. He leaves no room for competitors. And we see it today. People come to faith in Christ every day. People mock the name of Jesus every day. People kill the followers of Jesus every day. But we must not see that as a reason to stop preaching Jesus. It is tempting for churches and individuals to hide or change the message, to appeal to the world around us, or even to appeal to professing believers who don't want to hear hard words or even the gospel. To appeal to the world with what the world will like and enjoy. If you are sharing a message or living a life that is inoffensive in every single way to the unbelieving world, then you probably are doing something wrong. Now, Always want to delineate. If you're offensive because you're nasty, that's the wrong kind of, na- of offensive. But the gospel is offensive. We must not change the message as a church and as individuals. And we must not be ashamed of the message as a church and as individuals. I was burdened, teenagers, kids, believing in Christ. The world around us, sometimes it tells us, like, it's better, it's better out here. Or you're, you're, you're foolish for believing that. The gospel is true. And we need not be ashamed of it. 
in spite of the poor reaction and the Jewish leaders wanting him dead, now was not Saul's time. God had greater plans for him. He had a mission to fulfill. The brothers get him out of Jerusalem. So those who were afraid of him, now they're helping him. They're helping him on his way to the port city of Caesarea on a boat to Tarsus, his native city. I'm sorry, I got a lot of side notes today. It's just Tarsus. You know where Tarsus is? Or maybe a better way to ask it. What city Tarsus probably is? Tarshish. Most scholars agree that Tarsus is Tarshish. Where do we know Tarshish from? Jonah. Jonah wanted to flee to Tarshish to get away from God and God's call on his life. And it's neat to think about, well, for me anyway, I, talk, I can tell you how to react to it, some of the Jonah and Saul contrasts, right? Running away from God versus fulfilling God's mission. This is going to be the beginning of Paul fulfilling God's mission through him. Going to the other side of the world to get away from God's calling versus going to the ends of the earth with the gospel that we are called to do. And all that brings us to our last point, a promise being fulfilled. As I read through this passage over the last few weeks to prepare for this sermon, verse 31 seems so out of place to me. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It has the feel of a summary statement, right? Like we're wrapping something up here. Do you get that feeling from that verse? But it also has like a positive spin to it that I'm like, wait, wait. They want him dead. He's fleeing. Stephen's been killed. The church has been scattered. The image that came to my mind, I don't know, how many of you have seen like the Lord of the Rings movies? So in the Lord of the Rings movies, after movie, you know, the end of movie one and movie two, it just kind of leaves you with like, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. You know, Frodo and Sam, they're over here. They look like they're in trouble. The rest of the crew is over here and they, they don't know, we don't know what's going to happen with this with this gang of people. Saul is sailing away to Tarsus. What's going to happen? And this verse has the feel of something good happening. In spite of the fact that Stephen is dead, the people are scattered, and Saul is running for his life. It looks to me like the church is facing great opposition, like they're no longer enjoying the favor of all the people. It's true. It's true. But it's also true that God continues to work mightily. The church has reached the borders of Israel, right? It says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Or sorry, it doesn't say Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. It says, what's it say? Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. It's meaning to say, Luke is meaning to say, the church has reached the borders of Israel. And now Saul's sailing away hundreds of miles. I wonder what's going to become of Saul. 
The promise of Jesus was being fulfilled. The church had peace in that they were of one heart and one mind, even though they were facing opposition. The church was being built up in the truth. They walked, it says, in the fear of the Lord, meaning that they didn't have to be afraid of the world around them because they walked in the fear of the Lord. We don't need to be afraid of what people can do to us or say about us. It is the Lord we must fear. The church walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The helper was with them and in them. The Holy Spirit reminded them that the gospel was true and the hope of Christ was real. The Holy Spirit empowered their ministry and gave them gifts that they might serve one another and witness to the world. So even when it looks like the mission is threatened or hopeless, God's purposes prevail. 931 stands as testimony to that. The gospel will go forward. God will graciously change hearts and lives. The promise of Jesus will be fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, the same stands true today. It's easy to look at the world around us and think we are losing ground. The enemy's winning. We have no hope or little hope. Look at our culture. Look at everything that's going wrong. All those thoughts, they're wrong. Culture is getting rough. We, we do agree on that. But in good times and in rough seas, make no mistake about it, Christ's purposes will prevail. His people are called to bear witness to the only hope that this world has, the hope of Jesus Christ. We can be at rest and labor by His grace, knowing that He has the victory and He will build His church. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for a reminder from your word that you are a gracious God. Even just considering earlier the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We who boasted in ourselves, apart from your grace, have been shown great mercy so that we can acknowledge who are we? Be merciful to us, sinners in need of a Savior. And we're reminded in today's passage that you saved one of the most unlikely people ever to remind us that if you could show grace to one like Saul, one like us, there was none that we could judge unworthy or unable to be saved. You reminded us in your word, Father, that we are called to be faithful ambassadors of Christ and entrust the results to you. 
Help us, Lord. We admit that often we are afraid. Often we find easier subjects to talk about. Help us to make the most of every opportunity. And remind us, Lord, when we look at the world around us, remind us when we think that everything is crumbling, that whether we are in the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, you will build your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. And that you will safely bring every one of your children to your side for all of eternity. Help us to take comfort and walk in the fear of you by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.